Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Creativity. What is it? Why do people do it? What does it mean? These are the questions. I don't know. I just felt like getting a little pretentious right there. I love talking to creative people about how they do their thing, how they keep it going. Today, my guest is a good friend of mine, Howie Scora. He's a playwright. I had him on a few years ago when his very first play that he ever wrote was being produced here in L.A. It was called um, Miserable with an Ocean View. He's back with a play called Damaged Furniture. I saw it a couple weeks ago, and I laughed my head off. I love it even more than the first play, and I'm really proud of Howie because we're part of a writer's group together. We have been for several years, and it's been awesome to see him evolve and get these productions up, and, and he's his voice is so him, and it's so exciting to see that other people are enjoying it and laughing and having a great time. So before we get to that, I want to mention that the observation deck questions that I ask at the end of this podcast are available for purchase. If you would like a deck of your own to sort of just, you know, muse with cocktail people or uh, uh, in the car, maybe you have a long road trip, you want to, you know, ponder things, you can get those by going to DennisAnyone.net and on that homepage, there is a link to the uh, to where you... Uh, can do it through PayPal. Um, it's pretty uh, straightforward, and there's two choices. You can either get the Dennis Anyone design with the backs of the cards, or you could get the LifeCast design with the LifeCast design. So, so many choices. Um, and I also want to mention LifeCast. That's my side business. I interview people about their lives. Um, I help them mark milestones and, and save their memories and capture their loved ones. And... Um, I think Mother's Day is a great chance to get a life cast. So if you're, say you've got uh, siblings and you guys want to go in on something special for your mother, I think this is the perfect thing. I go and interview her and uh, we capture her story. You get to share it with the whole family. Um, everyone wins. So uh, there's a discount code too. Uh, Mom's the word. If you mention that when you book your life cast, you'll save 100 bucks. So um, go to getalifecast.com to learn more. All right, that's enough of the pluggy plugs. Here we go with Howie Scora. Hey there, I'm coming to you from the Whitefire Theater on Ventura Boulevard in Sherman Oaks. Um, we're in the office area. I'm with the playwright whose play is showing here, uh, Howie Scora, the playwright behind Damaged Furniture. Um, and Howie, you have another hit on your hands. Thank you, Dennis. Yeah. I know. It's, you, I, I love that turn of phrase. It makes me laugh. Um, <laughs> and you're looking very fetching in your polo. Thank you. Yeah. Um, You're living the dream. I, oh, is that okay? Yes. Um, <laughs> how, no, how do you feel? You got this is uh, um, your second play. The first time you did the podcast, you had a, a play called "Miserable with an Ocean View," uh -huh. and that was what two or three years ago. It was. It was. Um, it was about. It was. It was almost three years ago. Right but, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very, very happy, um, and. Uh, Obviously, working with Jim Fall again. Director and, Jim Fall, past podcast guest, yes. lover of the Partridge family. Lover of the Partridge family and the Exorcist one. Yes. Um, and uh, Director of Trick. Director of Trick, director of the Lizzie McGuire movie. Right. Um, and so, you know, Jim, uh, I asked Jim to direct Miserable mostly because he had just been a friend for so long. And right. We, you know, um, we it, it went so well, I, I, of course, asked him again to direct this one. And... Um, it was, uh, we, we definitely, uh, work well together. We collaborate well together and we, 
Um, and you're back on the boards. You call each other the c word a lot. Yeah. Uh, oh, that do you ever was, do yeah. that? In, do you ever do that in public when uh, you're out and around? I, well, I've actually, you're at Starbucks um, and you say, "Yeah." Well, actually, me and Jim had a talk, and I, I was like, "Look," because especially we had we we only had one actor that came back from the last play, and right. I said, "Jim, listen, we really shouldn't. You know, we should try and be more professional. Right. You know, not privately, but right. amongst the cast." Yeah, how, that, how long did that last? It, it la- you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it, I, it was a nice idea, right? But uh, you know, we don't mean it in a, it's, it's a loving thing. It's of just, it's just your thing. It's, it's just our thing. It's just we find it really, really funny for some reason. Right. And, and you both call each other that. Like, it's not like one person is the C and one person is another thing. Well, I think Jim is more, but that's, C. but that's, but that's my take on and it. And if I but, would ask him, he would yeah, say it's, you it's are. all vantage points. So yeah. I'm willing to concede that, that right. there's a reality disjuncture here, but, um, but obviously from my vantage point, I think I'm sweet and lovely. So you are sweet and lovely. Thank You're you. both sweet and lovely. Yes. Um, I love this play. I laugh my ass off during it. Yeah. I think I enjoyed it even more than Miserable, even though I love them both. Yeah. Um, and it's doing really well. How would you explain the plot to somebody that you just met at a coffee shop? Uh, it's about a, a, uh, Alex Scooby, who came back from Miserable. Right. But he's the lead this time. Uh, Alex plays a Los Angeles actor, kind of mid-level actor, kind right. of not, not really setting the world on fire, but was in a superhero show where he played um, a, a character named Pandemonium in kind of like an Avengers-style kind of thing on Hulu. And um, he, he plays a character that is intersexed, right. meaning has both male and female genitalia, right. and um, has the power that uh, he can shoot fire from his hands. Okay. And um, the sh- he got killed in like the sixth episode. And uh, got clocked in the head by an octopus, and so that's that his, that's his claim to fame uh, right. on on Hulu. And he gets a call that his uncle died in a bizarre furniture accident, and and flies into L.A. And then he gets a call from his agent Drew Drogi that they're spinning off his character. Uh, so for, he might not be dead after all. So he might not be dead after all. Which you know, even though this is satire, right? These, this is all based on real comic book stuff that I kind of read and stole and kind of right. just tweaked it a little bit. And um, and it was very hard actually to find. I'm, I'm not telling you the plot. So basically, uh, Alex has to fly back to L.A. to maybe get this exciting gig. Right. Uh, but he gets some information that, you know, with his uncle dead, the family wants him working in the business. And so he has to decide, is he going to kind of work in the business or is he going to take this role? between these two worlds. It's dream... And his family. His dream and his family, the, 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 which every artist, and you know this, Dennis, all of the artists in our writers group that right. never meet anymore because they're procrastinators, but right. every artist I'm friend with, friends with has this struggle, which is the struggle between you know personal life, uh, professional obligations, job, work, and how do I be an artist? And right. it's, um, so even though... Uh, and it's interesting because I, I don't ever see it explored the way it really feels, which is, right. you know, frustrating. And, and um, you know, usually when you see yeah, The artists, only thing more depressing than this is not doing it. Exactly. Or, right. you know, or, you know, I mean, most artists I know, the artists we see, uh, you know, in, in pop culture are really successful. But right. I know many more artists that... They're trying to find that balance. So, yeah. like, how do they make it happen? How do they pay their bills? Yeah. Uh, what are their obligations to family? And this is actually based on some real stories of friends, like uh, actor friends who ended up working in their family business or one way or another. Yeah. Um, 
I love that the uh, the furniture freak accident, mm-hmm. and there's a character that has a certain there's a word for it in the play who has a certain uh, there's two there's two phrases. So yeah. the first one is uh, there, and I didn't even know this when I wrote it. Um, right. There's a woman that actually married the um, Eiffel Tower. Oh yeah, and it's it's called objectum sexualis. Okay, there are, and it's oddly mostly women yeah. who uh, uh, fall in love with objects. So right. there's a woman in San Francisco who married the Eiffel Tower. Her name is Erica Latour. And now, Eiffel. now I won't even touch her anymore. Yeah, yeah, and so no, no, she has. A, she also has a physical relationship with the with the Berlin Wall. Okay. And this is a line that Mo Collins says in the, right. play. It's in the play. And people think like I made this shit up, and I literally. Uh, uh, cut and pasted from the Wikipedia. Right. Like, this is exactly, this is all fact. Like, there's right. this Erica Latour woman, she married the Eiffel Tower, she's a physical relationship with the Berlin Wall. Right. Objectum sexualis is a real phenomenon. Yeah, she's um, got her eye on the Sphinx, too. <laughs> she's, she, she just wants she's, to fuck the Sphinx. She doesn't really um, want to have a relationship. Uh, well, and also, you know, what does she think about the... Um, the Paris Hotel in Vegas, because that's like a little mini oh. Eiffel Tower. So that's like a, having a dildo. Yeah, like it, like what that's is like she? Having a Jeff Stryker dildo. Yeah, like like what is she? Does she? If she's in Vegas, does she hit any port in a storm? Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, and so uh, exactly. So, so you have, but you also have somebody that is that the? You said there's another one. There's well, another that's there's one phrase, and then but the original phrase I came up with was which is another real phrase, which is fornophilia, which is a, a which is a fetish for furniture. So there are two. Yeah, that's a real thing. There, so there's a fetish for furniture, and there's a fetish for objects. So uh, uh, some people can uh, have one or both. I'm guessing. So you can fetishize objects, and some of those right. objects could be furniture, or right. you could just exclusively see furniture. Then it's fornophilia. Yeah. Um, I bet there's like Tumblr blogs and um, uh, yeah. I bet there's there's a place on the web for everybody. <laughs> yes. Did you do any research into that stuff? You know, I I I just I was really just trying to think of yeah. of, of funny shit. Yeah. And then the more uh, I ex- uh, uh, kind of workshop this, the more people came up to me they're like, "Well, you know, this is a real thing." Right. And I was like, "You're shitting me." And then I started. I didn't even know about the Eiffel Tower thing right. until I. Like, like put it up in, in at the white fire at my at the actors gym and a woman came up to me and she was like you know there's people right. that really do. and I'm like you're shitting me like I just was trying to make up funny stuff right I love and, it and yeah you have to pick a recliner to be in this show <laughs> and it has to be a special recliner we auditioned a lot of recliners how did that go how was that process well we hired um, Dusty uh, Dusty Cunningham oh Dusty Cunningham thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Never met him, I don't think, but I know his work. Yes. So Dusty Dusty um, designed the clown for Miserable with an Ocean View. Right. Because there was... I, I, apparently my work has um, some kind of theme to it in terms okay. of weird sexual practices. So so in that one, there was a, a clown that was uh, um, a talking clown doll played by Drew Drogi that comes to life. And, um, and Dusty did this weird kind of clown porn. And so... He was the perfect choice when we were designing the clown. Yeah. And so when we designed the uh, very sexy recliner. Yeah. That's a Versace recliner. Damn right it is. Dusty, uh, Dusty came in and we, we took a, like the play, in the play, we took a lazy boy and he Versace'd it up and yeah. it looks amazing. And it works. Yeah. It's, it's great. great. It's really good. Um, talk to me about your cast. Oh my God. The most amazing cast. They're really great. So Alex Scooby, who was uh, Doug on King of Queens. 
um, as well as he's currently on the Fosters and right um, uh, San, Santa Clarita Diet. Right on. So Alex, uh, Alex was a friend of mine. He was in Miserable, and when I wrote this, I kind of had him in mind. Fantastic. He and plays kind of your main guy. He's the main guy, and um, once again, I because Alex was a friend, Alex would be talking about his actor stories of, you know, his gigs with Netflix and the pay and right. you know, pay is now you have to have. Used to be if you were on one show, you're like, I'm I'm kind of set. I'm for set. The year. I'm paying my bills. And now it's like, oh, I'm only a series regular on this on this streaming thing. What am I going to do for the rest of my nut? I I think people don't realize that actors today, if they're on television, it's like an Uber gig. It's Shit. kind of like it's like the gig economy has moved to acting, and so I mean, so I'm, it, it makes me bad. Well, well, what's weird is there's more opportunities right, because there's, there's more so much content, but. So there's more actors working and there's more bad actors working than ever before because right. there's this need. Yeah. Um, but uh, a lot of good actors have to take a lot less money. Right. And um, so, you know, I, I was kind of like when I started hearing these stories of like, you know, because you see somebody on TV and you're like, oh, you must make. Living like, the dream. No, no. No, it's Nobody's like Nobody's living the dream, Howie. Well, Andy no, Cohen. You know, well, Andy Cohen's living the dream. Let's not get into that. So, <laughs> let's not get into that. So, um, it, well, listen, I, you know, Andy... I like him. Uh, I who doesn't? Great. Who doesn't? Yeah. Okay, so... Kathy Griffin doesn't, but that's, <laughs> that's another story. Well, you know, and we could... We, I mean, that's, that's a whole hour right there. Oh, man. Yeah. Someday. Someday. So, uh, anyway, Alex told me a lot of these stories, and, and I kind of... Uh, stole a little bit when I was writing this. So some of the speeches, you know, Alex says he gets, when he's being really sad in the play, it's like, I actually sometimes, like, use direct quotes from him. Yeah. So it's no, just it does weird. have that feel of, like, a real working actor's life. How's he, how's he managing? I also love how all of his family doesn't understand the nuances of his intersex character and they yeah. think he's a drag robot or a gay robot or yeah. no one ever gets it right and he's constantly trying to 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 catch them up, get them get them woke about it. Yeah. Um, well, I, I and there's little things in the play that it's never really mentioned, but I'm really proud of, which is um, political correctness, which can get a little out of hand sometimes. Right. Um, and so I was it, just reading how um, people are upset that Taylor Swift covered an Earth, Wind, and Fire song. Why? Because I don't know. I, I heard something about She's they don't white. want. But did you I hear this? Know. Did you hear this thing? I, I don't know if it's true, but I heard a rumor that. Some people don't want drag queens in gay pride parades anymore because it offends it offends trans people. I don't know if that's true, but I, I if it if somebody said that to me, and if it is true, like yeah, that's a, I, I don't know, I don't know, but uh, people but, are crazy. Um, but but the point is, is that you know I I originally wrote in the play that his character was a hermaphrodite, and I didn't even realize that that was offensive. That we don't even use that word anymore, and it right. was the same thing where I had the word hermaphrodite in the play, and people were like, oh no no, you can't. And I'm like, why not? And they're like, well, you have to say intersex. And I didn't even know because when I studied sociology and I studied, you know, different cultures, in different cultures they don't perform sex reassignment surgery on people. Right. Like, so uh, in our culture we, we get threatened if something isn't male or female, so we fix it. Right. But in, you know, Navajo Indian cultures and other cultures throughout the world, there's a third sex. There's right. So they have a way to classify right. it in language, which is kind of nature's... Um, uh, you know, nature doesn't have the neat and tidy categories that we as human beings think we have. Right, that we seem to need. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, part of the joke was intersexed, hermaphrodite, gay, straight, I mean, yeah. and just even the homophobia of him playing 
uh, an intersex character when he goes home to Brooklyn, them not even understanding as, as was once again, a real thing. Cause I had a, uh, I had a film a very long time ago and it was a, a gay theme film and my mom and dad, and um, you can relate to this. And yeah. my mom and dad were like, it was a really, uh, they had a lot of cognitive dissonance cause they were really proud their son did a film right. and they were really embarrassed that it was a gay film. Right. And so it was one of these things where it was great. And it was horrible at the same time. Right. One of the only things my mother ever said to me about my book after I came out to her, but she said it to my sister. She goes, well, I, I guess they're not going to have it at the public library. <laughs> that was the extent of her commentary about me coming out with yeah. this book. Um, and I, and not even to me, it was to my sister, but that's okay. At least it was. She triangulated. Yeah. She, yep. she had a little laugh. It was all good, but yeah. yeah, no, it's right. It's like the good news is I'm, I'm, I'm an author of the ba- you know, whatever. It's not that bad of news. It's fine. Anyway. Exactly, exactly. So you've so, got Alex, then you've got oh, Mo. Mo Collins Delightful. from Mad TV. Um, currently, I can't tell you, but she just got a really exciting gig that she's awesome. flying out to Austin every week for, and um, you'll know soon enough. to do the show? She comes back every Saturday. She flies back every Saturday morning to do the show. I love that. Flies in from Austin. That's incredible. That's dedication. Yes, I love Mo so much. Yeah. And she's amazing in this show, and... Um, so, uh, and, and Mo is married to Alex in real life. Fantastic. And Mo was a big fan of, of Miserable. She's the one who kind of talked Alex into doing Miserable. Yeah. She read the play first because, and then she's like, you got to do this play. Right. So she's always been, um, she's always been a huge supporter Champion. of that. Yeah. Yes. Love her for that. And Mo is so amazing in this. And she has a monologue at the top of act two. It's, I'm so proud of that monologue and I'm so... What can you tell us about the monologue without spoiling well, it? Well, I don't think it's spoiling it. So, yeah. so since we've already kind of revealed it, so... What exactly, you, and a lot of my listeners aren't yeah. in LA anymore. Anyway, yeah, so, so the surprise of, of Act 1 is that the, the uncle uh, had this objection, sexualis, yeah. fornophilia, about a recliner. And it was a very specific recliner. Yeah. And when I wrote the play, I thought, you know, the great thing about when you have something absurd is... What's beautiful about absurdism is you can show how silly human beings are when right. you remove it. So I said, I'm going to write this very seriously about a woman who's been cheated on and her, her husband is dead. And so the, the recliner is treated uh, like the second woman. Yeah, the other woman. And, the mistress. And it's the mistress. And so Mo's entire emotional journey in the play is her kind of going through all the stages of grief about her husband fucking this recliner. Yeah, it was the song that Reba McIntyre has yet to record, <laughs> but it's right there it's, thematically. It's, it's, it's right a country there. western song. Yes. And um but what's beautiful about it is you see her kind of going through these emotions of grieving her husband, hating him for cheating on her. But it it's also kind of uh, unconsciously I think it's also kind of like it's symbolic of it if a man cheated on you uh, if your husband cheated on you with a man or your husband cheated on you with something that wasn't you. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's harder to compete. So she kind yeah. of has these emotions of like, what does this recliner have yeah. that I don't have? And she's so, taken, she's, she's taken it to the other woman and she's yeah. letting she's, her have it. She's given, it's like a Tyler Perry movie with, yeah. uh, with an and object. It's like 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 and it's, you see her go through, all of these emotions, yeah. and it's just her alone on the stage with the recliner, yeah. and you forget she's alone because she's so present to the recliner, yeah. 
And um, I, I remember when, when I Mo wrote it. When Mo read that the first time, was she like, oh, I can't wait to dig into this? Or yeah. was it like, okay, this is going to be a challenge? Or like, what, how does she feel about the monologue? She loves the monologue. And what I, I love most about Mo is, you know, we definitely cut. I tend to uh, write too much. Yeah, and right. we, we cut stuff down. But every line, almost every line that Mo has, especially that super long monologue, she didn't change a word. Like, it's a, yeah. it's verbatim as written, and I'm really, really proud of that. Like, she really respected my words. She didn't want to change a goddamn thing. Yeah. And I'm not precious. Like, if an actor says, this isn't working, I don't, you know, I'm not like Neil Simon, where I'm like, well, if you change one line, it's going to ruin everything. Like, what happened to Neil Simon? Is he dead? I don't know, but I but know he's got a, he he's a got play. A play. Well, minutes. no, he has a play running uh, down the street right now, actually. Is it new, so. No, Remember it's like 40 years old. 80s? That's the thing. Yeah. He used to have a play every 15 minutes, and then what happened? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I think he's still alive. I would okay. be. I think I'd be aware if he was. I think I would know it. Too. I was a huge Neil Simon fan. Right. Like I, I've read almost every play of his. Right. And he was like, you did yeah. all those scenes in school and everything. So okay. I mean, I definitely, um, I, I definitely, the way I escalate scenes, I kind of, I steal from Neil Simon all the time. Yeah. The way he's his style. Yeah, it's fun. Um, but but making my own, I'm, I, I I feel like you I'm a have really... your own distinct voice. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. Yeah, so that was the big takeaway from the show. Is like, how he's fucking crushing it. Thank you. And you're a man of the theater. I'm a. Th- I never. I, I um. You know, we met working in, in this writers group, writing yeah. pilots and movies. Yeah. And, and stuff. And how do you feel to be a theater guy? Um, well, it, it came out of the frustration of not realizing my work and I'm not getting to see anything realized. And, um, I just, I don't like spending six years to six years, six months to a year of my life, um, like working on something and then, you know, having a manager say, oh, we sent it out and you know, they, they loved it, but whatever. Like I just, at least you have a manager. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Yeah. And, um, uh, but I had this, uh, I had this one manager who made me rewrite a pilot for six months. And then he was like, we're going to go wide with this. And he sent it to two people and they were like, we don't like the main character. And he's like, you need to change everything. And I was like, what? And so I remember I, this. Yeah. About this. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that kind of did it. I was like, I'm done like waiting. Like I'm not even getting people who can get my stuff made saying change things i'm getting the people that are supposed to sell my stuff change it's like it's like building a house and then trying to sell the house and the realtor says i need you to move the kitchen to the basement and i need you to move the the bedroom to the third floor and um so i i was just like you know what whenever i'm happiest is when i realize my work yeah and i'd rather realize my work and have control and um so, so the real lesson has been to like trust my instincts. Yes, and um, kind of I, I I've kind of bypassed uh, the system that I feel was keeping me down in a certain sense. Yeah, and found another way. Yeah, um, and I imagine you when your show's running and you're up and it's going and you and you just show on Saturday nights for quite a while. Yeah, very interesting um, run pattern. But that you're just like, oh, Saturday, I get to go do the show. Is it like, does it bring a little juice to your life? Well, it's interesting. Like other theater LA people, I often get uh, a little shade at parties where they're like, and they kind of look down on me like, oh, Saturday. Like, and I'm like, have yeah, you ever you're been- not really committed. Yeah. And I'm like, have you're you ever not been- in it to win it. Have you ever been to a Sunday like yeah. show in LA? Like nobody shows up and like we sell out like every Saturday night because 
It's both go out one, on Saturdays. It's one night a week. And um, also, because we're, like, I can afford to keep the show going longer. And that's the White Fire, um, uh, Brian, who runs the White Fire, that's the White Fire design. That's their model. Because I could, you know, because yeah. otherwise... You imagine you have to do it, you know, in a month because we have other shows that have to come in. Like, yeah, and, how are you able to and, sort of make it work? And also the way L.A. works, if a show runs for a month, nobody's going to make it because yeah. everybody's so busy and it's so, you know, whatever. But the great thing about having a show running for two months or three months is, like, you can nag people. Like, right, they or they can't. keep hearing. I keep hearing yeah. that's good. I keep yeah, hearing. Okay, I've exactly. Go. And, yeah. and so it's it's a much better model for those reasons. Otherwise... The average play in L.A. will run two weeks to a month. And then if it's really good, it'll maybe run a month and a half. And you know what that's like. It's like by the time you think of going, it's already over. And so this model works. And also since I'm self-financing, I'm not spending money on days of shows that aren't selling selling well. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So I'm really, really thrilled and happy with this model. And – and also because I have a full-time day job, it's like, it's yeah. more manageable. Now, a, a couple of years ago, I think when you first mounted Miserable, you had taken sort of a sabbatical from your yeah. day job yeah, yeah. to sort of focus more on your writing and stuff. What was the what was the takeaway from that experience? And then you sort of went back to the job. Uh, takeaways, I need uh, a trust fund is the takeaway because yeah. I really like being unemployed and you writing. Liked, you like the lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. But, um, what, what, but what's weird is, is because I... Um, because I was able to, I, I needed to be unemployed during the, my first show. But to now, make it happen. But now that I kind of know how to do all this, yeah. I can, you know, and the good news is Jim doesn't want me in rehearsals. So Jim is the director. Jim yeah. is the director. So I kind of, what was so cool about this was once I got everything in place, it was like a train that was running without me. And yeah. uh, I was able to like work my full-time day job and everything was running because I had my friend Jamie handling everything. I had, I basically had all my friends in place doing the work for me and because they wanted it to be good. And I, it was, it was, uh, it was a really great experience this time too. I'm really happy for you that you have this creative community of people that you, you're yeah. up your thing. It's awesome. Yeah. I feel really lucky and supported and, um, yeah. And, and even you and, and Glenn and everybody from our writers group who, was so supportive and, you know, even gave me, um, like, uh, there's a note, I think there's one line in there that I remember that when I saw the show, yeah. I'm like, I think that came out of one of our note sessions. So. Yeah. Yeah. And just, awesome. just everybody, like yeah. even the, the poster, um, I think Glenn, I really me. like the font. Yes. That's my friend Lucas. My friend yeah. Lucas in San Francisco design. I mean, basically I just recruited all my friends to do that's everything. Awesome, though. That's yeah. Great, that's the best way to do it. It really is. Um, we didn't talk to we didn't talk about a couple of the other characters. The sister who I adore. Oh, love her. She's so funny. Jessica she, Polly. She's been on stuff. She's the she's the bad guy in the new Pee Wee Herman movie on Netflix. Which, okay. Okay. It's Pee Wee's I think big it's it's Pee Wee's most recent bad whatever. Big wedding. But she's one of the, the badass yeah. bank robber checks. There's a, s- a sequence in this play involving coffee <laughs> and a fancy hotel room that was my it's the most I laughed in the play. I laughed so much in this play. Thank you. I'm really proud of the coffee scene because it it's a real story. Yeah, it's from your own life. Can yeah. You, what can you tell us about the well, coffee? Well, it's two. Scene? It's two. It's two real things that happened. So, my sister was staying at La Costa. Yeah. 
and I went to visit her. Where is La Casa? California? It's, it's in, like, San Diego-ish. Okay, yeah. You know, but it's not... Yeah. I don't understand the alligator shirts, like, what right. the hell that has to do with La Costa, other right. than it was a joke in Private Benjamin. Right. So, but it's... La Costa's, like, a fancy spa yeah. hotel. So I show up in the hotel room, and the first thing my sister said to me is, is she's like, oh, here, you know, they gave me some, take, have some free coffee. It was like a big bag of Starbucks. Right. And like I was like, I don't, I don't want the freebies in the yeah. room. And, and I was somebody like, should have yeah, it. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't want it. And she got, she was like, and it was actually, it's actually, it was worse than in the play, because she was like, fuck you, like, why don't you want the coffee? And we got to do a big She fight. would not let it go, and it represented something else. Yes. What did it represent? That sh- that you in real life or in the play? It, I, yeah, I guess I, Well, it's kind of what's, it's in, it's in the play, like, I kind of felt it as an insult that she was giving me the coffee, because that she you felt sorry for me. Yeah. yeah, like the poor I'm the star brother. artist. And, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, she just wanted to give me free coffee. Yeah. Like, and I was, I was in a much more defensive place in my life. Yeah. And so I was always like, I gotta, like, this has had to have happened to other people. Like, or it's probably happened to nobody, but. No, it the, does, but the thing becomes about something the else. The fight, the, the coffee fight is like persisted yeah. for like, I think two days. Yeah. Like, our, in our would, family, it was about Hummel figurines. Yeah. Yeah, after my mother passed away. So I, I kind of was like, I need to explore how, you know, yeah. you, and I've been in these relationship fights where like you fight about something and it's the dumbest fucking thing in the world. Like yeah. it's so stupid. But you could understand why both people would stick to their guns and like, I am not going to take that fucking coffee. Yeah, yeah, and so take that, the fucking <laughs> coffee. <laughs> and Jessica's just so amazing. Yeah, and, I love her. Um, so, so that that was the one thing, and then the other thing was my sister was in New York when my mother had her bypass. Right. And she was staying in a tranquility hotel. Right. Which, you know, it's so funny because people think I make, like, I make this shit up, but like, there, she really was staying in a tranquility hotel. Is that the name of the hotel? or is it, it was, that, that was the theme. It was right. like a Japanese theme. Like, like Cafe like, Gratitude or I, some nonsense. I swear to God, it drove me crazy because I Googled the hell right. out of this. Right. Like, when I was writing the play, like, I gotta find this hotel. Right. And I couldn't find it, and I was like, I know I didn't imagine. Like, it was a tranquility hotel. But apparently it went out of business. I guess it wasn't. In New York City, nobody wants to be tranquil. No, they just want to yeah. fuck hookers. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so she was staying in a tranquility hotel, and uh, it was me and my sister were starting to have a fight, and it was kind of a similar fight to the, the thing in the play um, about what I was doing with my life and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, um... And security came to the uh, to the door because we were making so much noise and screaming. Mostly, we were both screaming, but I was screaming more. That uh, security came to the door, and wow. I was like, "Wow, we're getting security from the Tranquility Hotel is right. coming to right. bust us." So those two real life things merged together, merged into, and and then I just kind of expanded upon that. Yeah, and it's weird because the. The coffee fight scene never fit in the play, but it was like, I knew I, you know, I knew I had to find a way to make it work. And it finally, right. it, it's, it's essential to the play. And I found a way to kind of weave it in yeah. so that it's not out of anywhere. I, watching it, I was like, how he's really found his voice. Like between these two plays, they're very much you. Thank you. And I don't know if that's because I have been in your writer's group and I've read, you know, and I know. Yeah. But are you feeling, are you getting that a little bit from other people, the audiences, people that come to see it? Or is yeah. it, are you starting to feel like, yeah. oh, I've got 
a, a brand is maybe the wrong word, but I'm starting to build a... Yeah. Um, no, I, I I think that's fair. I, a I, brand or a, yeah, a, a um, reputation. Uh, no, I mean, and, and uh, uh, when I, you know, when I first... Uh, it was a really weird experience doing this play because the first play I had no experience, like, putting up a play. And so there right. was no... Um, but there was more to lose this time. Like, I didn't want Miserable to be my best work and, or my only work. Like, and, um, like I said, I really feel like this, I'm, I'm, I love Miserable, uh, you know, Miserable's like an old girlfriend. I love Miserable, but this is my current bow and I'm kind of like more in love with this play now. Right. And, um, uh. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and the reviews, like, you you can't, listen, you can't take reviews too seriously because, you know, it's all subjective anyway. But right, exactly. I, um, I mean, some of the reviews that I've read that I really, like, they really got it. And they really, uh, like, saw what I was trying to do and they kind of, right. they got the deeper stuff. Like, it, it's one thing to be funny. It's another thing when people understand that you're trying to be funny but also kind of create... Depth. There are themes. There's, a, yeah. there's something you want to say. And I remember when I was reading it the last time, there were two things that jumped out at me, and I was like, oh, that's great. And one of them had to do with shame. Yeah. Do, does that ring a bell? Yeah, and then I think, you know... Which and weird, then the other yeah. one, I don't remember what it was, but it was like a, one of those thematic, thematic sort of... Uh, shame was shame's the first one of the play, and then... Like something, everybody has something that they'd be ashamed of, or... yeah. Yeah, and everybody in the play. Uh, so, so it's interesting because you know, damage is also there's no. I mean, there's kind of you know references to intersex characters, but there's right. no there's no gay characters in the play. And miserable, right. the the protagonist was a gay man, right? Um, a closeted gay man, but a gay man. And um, I, I struggled with, do I want to, like, is my protagonist gay or is my protagonist straight? Like, I right. didn't know which way to go, and. Uh, and part of me was like, no, it needs to be gay because I don't want to, like, I, I want to see plays with gay protagonists and I want to be, like, the Shonda Rhimes of playwrights and, you know, I want to have... Or if I, if I don't do that, am I yeah. really doing it justice? Am I bringing everything I, it, is I this, have to Is it? this me if I'm not having right. my protagonist be a right. gay man? Am I cheating? Yeah. And I finally... In order to, to be more uh, accessible. Or or authentic. or And yeah. also, am I, am I only making this character straight so that it's... Yeah, to get more yeah. butts and seats. And then, uh, though having a gay play also helps you get butts and seats. Like, yeah. it's true too. But um, I finally reconciled it because I was like, you know, as as the play became more and more about the father-son relationship, whereas Miserable was about a gay man's, you know, you always see the cliche of the gay man who has a good relationship with his mother. Right. And I wanted to kind of blow that up. I wanted to show the other side of that. Right. And, um, uh and so it was important to me in the play that that element was there. But in this play, I realized that gay men and straight men, they always have relationships with their dads that are, I mean, complicated. Right. Well, it's like you look at what you're trying to explore, and if you if you put gay with it, does that does it make it enrich does it make it, it any better? Does it enrich it, or yeah. does it maybe diminish it? Because then it has other things going on. Yeah. And and I I could see that that conversation is is important and um so the, the issue of shame came up and i realized that in, in some weird way i i got the best of both worlds by alex's 
the, the character in the play by him playing a gay or not even a gay character, but just um, an LGBT a queer, something, something, something in that's the, in it's queer in queer sensibility, yeah. and that's what's so funny about it is yeah. he even says in the play, you know, I'm not gay, I'm intersex. So no he's matter so who I'm so defensive about it, which yeah. is so funny. He's like, no matter and who I have sex with, he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. He's like, no matter who I have sex with, I'm straight yeah. and gay at the same time. I don't care. You're playing a yeah. gay robot yeah. as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I kind of got the best of both worlds because an actor's experience this all the time is that there's this shame about if their kid is an actor that may or may not – it even has nothing to do with gayness. Right. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But I realized that there's a similar dynamic there when you're an actor or you're not conventional – and you have a more traditional parent or traditional father. Right. You did you followed your bliss and you didn't you didn't get into the, you know, breadwinning or you didn't take take over the family business yeah. and, and, and the shame that's involved in that. Yeah. And the you know, the mixed messages that are involved in that. Um and um so yeah, so I, I kind of I came through that kind of question with like, no, like this is, this is authentically a how we score a play. Yes. Uh, the, the, the protagonist is heterosexual, um, but he's playing a gay guy on TV. Right. And, but I played with the same, I explored the same themes, right. but I also made it more universal. It felt for right me. for this play. Yeah. That's awesome. And I'm really, really proud of that. And I, yeah. and also, cause I don't want to just write, you know, no. queer plays. I want to write all different kinds of plays. Yeah. I, I want to serve the story, and if it serves my story yeah. to have a queer, whatever, queer protagonist, then I'm going to do it, yeah. because I feel like we're in a different time. I feel like that can be done now without it yeah. being, um, you know, shocking or weird. I, I'm, kinda, I'm at that place where I'm a little fed up, where I just feel like everyone should just do whatever the fuck they want. You would think. <laughs> you would think. You know? Um, um, which but, is where I came to, but right. I kind of, um, like I said, I kind of, uh, exactly, I'm still kind of figuring out Yeah. What, what when I write a play, like, when I finally let it go, I'm like, okay, this is me. This reflects yeah. my view of the world, and it's authentic, regardless of, you know, what the characters do or don't do, yeah. you know? How has... Having these plays produced and, and the creative excitement of that, how has it um, affected your thoughts about screenwriting or Hollywood or those kinds of opportunities? Has it do, do, Does it feel like totally separate worlds or does it feel like they feed each other? Does it feel like, oh, I'm more excited now if I get a, a meeting I want to go to? or uh, you know what I'm saying? It. Uh, I feel like I'm uh, carving out my own... Uh, like, like whatever this is. And I also feel like, uh, I can't speak very well to that establishment because I'm not ever yeah. in it. Yeah. But when you've got something going on and people are liking it and you're doing, oh, he's do you know, when you've got something going on, you're a more interesting person. You would think. You would think. You would think. Um, so in terms of that, yeah, like I would, uh, I mean, I'm definitely more, I'm in a place where I, I'd rather be making no money doing these plays with right. actors I want to work with and directors I want to work with and people I want to work with. Because you get to do the thing. Then writing on some, you know, yeah. somebody else's show uh, in a room, yeah. you know, with my name on a script when it's not, you know, right. not really my stuff. Right. So um, in answer to that, if if somebody offers me a job, I'm going right. to say yes. Have, but, has anyone come to your plays and... and has it opened any doors in that way? No. <laughs> Not yet. I mean, um, 
I've definitely had like. You know, I'll go home right now and open a door. Thank you. Dedicated to you. Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, Here, hang on a second. Uh, you know what's I'm weird? I'm opening is, a door. Right <laughs> you're really doing that. Yeah, thank you for opening the door. Because you're so funny um, and talented. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so no, I mean, what's what it's what it's made me realize is just I need to keep doing my own thing. Yeah. So our next game plan is to get to New York. We're just trying to raise money to take us to New York. Love it. Hear that? Um, All my New York producer friends. Yeah. So we've got, we've already got some money. We've got three. Yeah. And basically it happened because I was at dinner with a, with a friend who's, um, you know, who's made some money and he was like, whatever happened with your last play? And I said, Oh, you know, and he's like, well, you know, get that in another city and I'll give you, you know, some money. And I was like, what? And so what's, so what's weird is, is like, Non-industry people are like saying they want to help me by offering me money. And in some weird way, I'd rather do that anyway because I can still do my own thing, which is – so the the goal would be to get this to New York. The goal would be to, you know, uh, get get these plays in other cities and and then, yeah, if we could turn it into a movie or if somebody wanted to do that, I'm not – you know, I'm not like – Yeah. Like, oh, no, you know, like – Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, you're watching your play in a full house of people – what moments of the audience reactions feel the best? The ho- the coffee scene. The when coffee scene's my favorite. When the, the audience is laughing at that? Yeah, and also just... Because, because it's one of those things where it goes on a certain period of time, and you're like, okay, this can't keep going on. And then it does, and then it keeps get, then it gets funnier again. You yeah. know what I mean? It's that yeah. thing of like, okay, they need to be done with that. Oh, wait, they're not. Yeah. Oh, wait, it's even more yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's my favorite. That and the Mo monologue. Just, yeah. I just... It's, it's just gorgeous. Like, it's just gorgeous. Like, it's just, like, it's not even so much, it's funny. It's just, I just love the, the journey that she, all of the emotions she plays and just, you know, she owns that fucking stage when she's on the stage. She just owns it. And, um, Alex too, like Alex is on stage for, um, Alex is on stage for the entire lot of the play. But wait, and and I haven't... We have to get through the rest of the actors. Oh, yeah, that's your parents. Okay. And then Robbie... Robbie is... Robbie is such a find because Robbie... He plays the father. He's the dad. Right. Um, This play would have sucked without the right father. Right. Um, Robbie came in and blew us away. And, you know, if this was done with a sitcom dad, this play would not have the levels that Robbie brings to the role because, um, once again, without really ruining the play for anybody, you know, Robbie plays an alcoholic, but I wanted Robbie to be an alcoholic that I've never really seen, which is, you know, real alcoholics, they're very charismatic and likable and functional. And, um, Robbie plays a dad that isn't like, has done horrible things to his son. Yeah. Like really horrible things, but you love him and you see that Alex would be conflicted because you love this guy and he's awful right. and he's funny and you love him and you hate him. And that's what the play would not work without that dynamic working. And then also the, the last cast member, Peggy, who plays the mom, which is, uh, you know, based on my real life mom, who's who's no longer with us and Peggy who had a Jewish, um, stepmom is channeling, you know, is channeling her a little bit, but I mean, she has nailed, like, it's kind of creepy sometimes in a really kind of nice way. 
uh, how she has nailed my mother's kind of almost like she was way lying. of speaking and patterns. And yeah. so, what's um, it like when you're auditioning people to play the parents? Do you think about your own parents and, or do they ring those bells a little for you when they're doing the lines? Well, it's weird is that um, Robbie's nothing like my real life dad. My real life yeah. dad was really really quiet um, because there were so. No, I was mostly just looking for. I, I, we knew immediately when the right actor was in the room uh, because the scenes I write really, really long scenes, and with the wrong actor, they're they're torture. And I remember we auditioned dads, and the first dad came in, and uh, you know, gentleman came in, and and you know, he, I'm sure he was a great actor. It's just he, you know, he. It, it was painful to watch those ten pages, and right. I started going, "Oh my god, this place!" I suck. I, I immediately was like. Yeah. The scene doesn't work. It's terrible. Right. Then another guy came in. Second guy came in and was very, very funny and left the room. And me and Jim and Alex were like, well, that's our dad. That's our dad. We got our dad. Yeah. And then Robbie came in and our jaws were on the floor. And we were like, that's the dad. And the only difference that Robbie gave was it was a scene where Robbie's laughing at his son for his, you know, gay robot show and just – Robbie's got this thing where he's just laughing. He's like, you're going to fly back to New York to be, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Robbie was like doing this drunk kind of like jerk laugh. And it was so brutally funny and so awful, like so nasty to Alex and so funny. And it was like, that's the dad. That's it. It's like, he's horrible and so funny. Yeah. And you can be both. Yeah. Like real drunks are like real Real drunks are, you love them, you love them being messy, and it's dangerous. Yeah. It's it's almost like, um, yeah, it's, it's and, it, and it's related to toxic masculinity, which is yeah. also what the play is about. I love it. What's it like to see the actors come in and, and see what it means in, them, in their life that they get to be doing their thing in this way? On a, you know, maybe they're not making a ton of money or whatever. It, I, I don't know. I find it really inspiring. When I go to a play and I see all the names in the program and I think... All these people are on board for this. Um, everybody in this play is so dedicated. And they're and into it, right? They're so into it. How does Mo- that make you feel? It makes me feel uh, really privileged and really lucky. And right. um, I love all of them for it. I mean, I mean... But they're I, doing what they love, too. They're doing what they love, too, and it's special and it's important. I, yeah. they, all, they all know how special this play is. Right. Like, like, and, like, that's, that's what's been the amazing experience about this is yeah, to just the, the distinction between just writing something and having a manager say, yeah, you know, and just having amazing talented actors come in, um, and to have a really talented director elevate the material, which Jim always does. You know, Jim comes in and visualizes, uh, you know, added so much to this. He's the one that, um, the play looks amazing on a shoestring budget. And, um, is so you know Jim is so detail oriented makes you know every little tiny thing is just in the right place do they do the actors find it a little hard because it, they go a whole week between doing it in terms of like getting back in the yeah yeah but swing. but uh the third show they they're finally in the swing of it what I'm freaking about is we have another mom coming in in two weeks yeah because Peggy's going out of town okay so that's gonna you know that's, that's gonna, gonna be, gonna be interesting. Yeah. That's fun. Okay, so you picked some questions from the observation deck. Okay. All right. What movie did you see when you were way too young to see it? Exorcist. 
How old were you? Uh, ten. Wow. I got my mom to drag me and my best friend. So your mother took you? Yes. What was she thinking during it as it was unfolding? I don't know, but I, it's, I, I, it scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Like, that, that movie is just the scariest How did your ever. friend react? Well, he, it was like, he thought it was cool, and I was, like, terrified. So. Wow. Yeah. Giving you nightmares and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't see it until probably, like, seven or eight years ago. Wow. I was well into my Oh, life. my God. That movie is just it's terrifying. Well, I, what, I, what struck me about it, among many things, was that I always thought it was sort of like an idyllic family has this bad thing happen. But the family was like this sort of selfish actress, mother. Like, it wasn't a nuclear family at all. It was like... I don't know. It was kind of like she was an actress, and yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. It's just so good. Yeah, it was good. Anyway, have you ever stolen anything? Uh, I used to steal books out of my um, college bookstore, and they called me in because uh, a girl that had a crush on me ratted me out and told them. And um, it's not how. That's not a way to get into Howie's pants. But <laughs> but I I kind of like was. I don't even know why I was doing it, but I was kind of grateful because they basically, um, uh, I was grateful because it snapped me out of it and I've right. never stolen it's, anything ever since. Exactly. What kind of books would you steal? Like just textbooks? Like, just or like just textbooks, like, but like yeah. textbooks I didn't need. Like it was yeah. weird. You had them like, on a ride thing going it. on. I just did it because I could do it. Yeah, yeah. but it, but they basically called me in and they were like, look, we know you're doing this. We're not going to do anything, but stop it. And I was like, okay. And then I was like, what the fuck's wrong with me? Why am I stealing am I shit? Stealing <laughs> and I just stopped. Did, how did the girl know? Did you tell her? I told her. I was like bragging about it. I was an idiot. I was. Such, right. I used to be such an idiot. All right. Okay. Crime, crime, crime. All right. What's a voicemail that was left for you that you played more than once? Uh, Phil Hendry, who is, uh, some people might know who he is. He used to have a radio show on, uh, I think KFI. Yeah. And he did this character called Bobby Dooley. Okay. And, um, uh, Margaret Gray, who is a, who's a, uh, a journalist. Anyway, a friend who worked with him got him to leave a voicemail in the character of Margaret Gray. And I wish I still had it. It was the funniest. Because Margaret Gray sounds like this. And, and, like, he left the message as the character. And it you was were just, already a fan of him. I was, like, I was over the moon. I was, like, I, I was I was upset when I... It was on an old cell phone yeah. that you couldn't even text on. So yeah. there was no way to say That's that. That's cool. Yeah. What celebrity death hit you the hardest? Um, Alan Rickman. Really? I was really bummed about that. The act, the British actor, Yes, right? I loved him. In Harry Potter. And, Harry Potter, you know. Die Hard. He was Hans right. in Die Hard, which right. is like my favorite my favorite movie ever. Yeah. When I was, when I was that age. And um, I was just like, I just wanted him to work more. Like, I just wanted him to do right. more shit. Like, it wasn't even like, it was just like... You know, some actors. You know, and like, he also feel his contemporaries seem to really love him. When he died, he felt like yeah, all of his people seemed to really be like I don't know. It seemed like everyone loved him behind the scenes. Yeah, and just like even in Love Actually, like he's yeah. just he's just so it's it was weird because it it I didn't know how much I loved him until he passed, yeah. and it was because I was like, and I was just pissed that he wasn't ever going to work again. Like, yeah. There's no more movies of his. Yeah, like see. I can't see any more Alan yeah. Rickman stuff. I know. So, yeah, it was a weird... Um, I, I guess when other people die, you're like, oh, well, it was over. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like if um, if somebody passes and they're not really working anymore, but it was it was somebody who just... You, you felt know, like he still had some great... He still had some great stuff him. to do. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I felt bad when Tim Russer died from Eat the Press. Oh, wow. I loved him Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. 
No, I get that one too. And I think it was was it bef- it was before Obama's election, I think. So it, it kind of was like, oh, you got to m- you missed this whole exciting time, and yeah. he was the best at that show. Um, tell people how they can learn more about your show. Um, so they can uh, go to uh, damagefurniture.brownpapertickets.com. Once again, that's just damagefurniture.brownpapertickets.com. Uh, so the title comes before brownpapertickets.com. Damagefurniture.brownpapertickets.com. Yeah. Or just Google damage furniture, but also add white fire or something. Otherwise, you'll just see a lot of damaged yeah, you'll uh, just coffee see a, tables. Yeah, b- bookshelves. So damage furniture, play, Google that, yeah, and you're good. I love it. Um, last question. What do you hope people get from your play? Um, it's a really good question. I hope they get, uh, that you can love your family. They can be unbelievably fucked up and, um, they can drive you crazy all at the same time. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I'm inspired by you. Thank you, sir. Um, I'm really proud of you. I was like being in the audience and going, that's a guy from my writer's group and he did this. And yeah. it's awesome. So yeah. enjoy it. And um, thanks for having me. Thank uh, you. Do the podcast. Oh my God. So much fun. Thank Yay. You. Give me a hug. Give me a hug. You're awesome. Okay. Thank you, baby. Bye. That door I opened okay. earlier, it's yes. closed. It's closed. It's, it's, you it's missed the window. <laughs> All right. That was Howie Scora. Thanks, Howie, for doing the podcast. If you guys are in L.A., Definitely go see Damaged Furniture. You will laugh your head off. All right, so this happened. My roommate Penelope celebrated a birthday recently, and so for my present, I took her to an escape room with some other friends. We went to L.A. escape rooms uh, downtown. We did The Alchemist, and we did not make it out. But only 16% of, of players make it out, or groups make it out. So... We're in good company, but what was funny is there was one point where someone on our team put a little key into a lock and then just broke the key. So we were like, I don't know what happens now. So there was like a druid person in the room that was kind of giving us hints and supervising, but not speaking. She did a lot of pointing, um, but uh, she sort of took the broken key and long story short, we ended up skipping a whole section uh, and we got a little extra time after that. So, but we still didn't, we didn't... um, escape but we we left a mark because we broke something which i think is good one of my favorite things though they had this fun element where smell was what you had to figure out different there were different smells and you had to put them in a certain or uh order they're like little you know perfume bottles of smells and that was fun that was like ooh, every sense is being stimulated here so i think it's fun doing escape rooms and i think the more you do the more you want to do they are a little bit like oh i want to do that one now so, I don't know. If you've never tried one, I think um, I highly recommend it. I've really enjoyed dipping my toe in that world. All right. That's enough for this week. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.